everyone. I'm Brian Carrington, and you're listening to Call Talk for May 15th, 2013. Today's topic is government call centers and how simple operational adjustments can lead to improved service levels and increased customer satisfaction. That's important to everybody. Now, if you're listening live, we want to invite you to be a part of the show and ask questions. And here's how you can do it. You can either email me, and probably the most popular method, at brian at benchmarkportal.com. That's B-R-I-A-N at benchmarkportal.com. Now, if you're listening on the phone or close to one, you can also call in and ask a question live. That phone number is the following, 347 857 3117. But make sure to press the number 1 on your phone to let me know that you have a question and I'll get you in. Also, I want to remind you that the first person to ask a live question on the phone today will receive a complimentary $1,500 benchmarking survey from Benchmark Portal. I also want to remind everyone that all of our shows are archived and available to listen to at benchmarkportal.com any time of the day that's good for you. So, with that being said, I'd like to introduce the host of Call Talk, who is broadcasting live from the AGCCP Government Contact Center Conference in Indianapolis, Indiana, Bruce Belfiore. Well, thank you very much, Brian. And uh, today's topic is one that's near and dear to people who are with me here at the Association of Government Contact Center Professionals in downtown Indianapolis. We've had some great speakers already, including the former mayor of Indianapolis, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing our longtime friend and mentor, Professor Richard Feinberg from Purdue University, who will be speaking about new trends uh, that government call center managers should know about. And, in fact, I've been told I'll have to meet Professor Feinberg shortly, so I've been joined by our Call Talk content coordinator, Dee Buell, who will assist me with this episode. Hi, Buell. How are you doing? Hi, Dee. How are you doing? <laughs> really good. Thanks. Okay, great. Thank you, Dee. Well, now to introduce our special guest, uh, Kim Barrett. Uh, Kimberly Parrish Barrett graduated from Florida State University with a bachelor's in business and a master's in public administration. Uh, she's been the director of the Florida Abuse Hotline for over two years and has previous experience as workforce management administrator, data analyst, and call floor supervisor for five years, and she's a certified public manager. And as head of the Abuse Hotline, Kim is, some, Kim is someone who works in a very important area of public service. So it's my pleasure to welcome Kim Barrett. Hey, thank you, Bruce, and thanks for having me on. I'm very excited to um, be a part of the show today. Okay. Well, great. Well, Kim, with your broad range of experience, how do you find that a government social service call center is different than a for-profit call center? Generally, with a for-profit call center, you're um, looking to either increase sales, increase your call volume, any type of interaction with your customer, um, it is seen as something uh, positive, so you're trying to generally increase your call volume. But with a government or social service call center specifically, and how, what we deal with here at the Florida Views Hotline, we don't generally want to increase our call volume. We want our um, families to be served the first time we actually enter into their home, and as a result, um, uh, it's interesting also trying to figure out how to uh, adjust for the first call resolution that 
many of the call centers look at. So uh, the metrics are just different in general. And that first call resolution is not necessarily the goal here with a social service call center because uh, specifically with the Florida Abuse Hotline, we want to encourage all, all callers who may suspect abuse and neglect across the state to call the call center. We may get uh, various sources calling us. So for one type of um, customer or contact, we could have several different phone calls. So it's just very a uh, very different um, dynamic when you're really trying to, to figure out um, how to manage in a social service environment in a call center or contact center than you would for a profit call center or something uh, driving for sales. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can see where the metrics would be very different. And um, it reminds me of some of the centers that we've helped in the past. Um, I think I may have mentioned to you the breast uh, cancer uh, survivor support hotline and things like that, where really uh, some metrics that are close to the hearts of uh, call center managers like average handle time, et cetera, first call resolution, uh, would really they go these metrics go out the window because you have other things that you're judging judging your success by. Uh, so yeah, that's a very very interesting point that uh, you have to sort of be held to different metrics. I'm sure there are many areas of the government sector that do in fact look to those same metrics as the private sector. You just have to sort of choose, uh, you know, or, or understand what your mission is and and really manage to those uh, those metrics, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Um, you have to definitely use them appropriately. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you see as current best practices in uh, workforce management, for example? Um, uh, and how do you motivate employees in, in a government call center environment? So along the same lines of using those metrics, generally when you're looking at workforce management, you're plugging um, your statistics into some type of software that helps fits out and forecast the best schedules and what your expected call volumes or wait times might be, especially during a seasonal environment. And with the kind of business we do here at the hotline, uh, when school's in, generally you have a lot of school teachers calling. So during the school year, we have this peak season and then summer comes and you can really determine um, how to best staff or, or you know put your resources out there. But it's very difficult when you're trying to uh, forecast and schedule using that um, statistical software because it uses average handling time. And if you're not driving towards a specific average handling time, it's very difficult to try to manage that workforce and, um, and ultimately uh, use that uh, software that helps them understand how they're performing. So if you're giving them some type of metric or scorecard that um, is tracking their average handling time, if you're not really driving towards that or uh, first call resolution or any um, of the standard type of metrics, it's very difficult to then turn around and motivate employees based on those metrics and any type of performance evaluation. So what we try to do here um, in our social service environment is really focus on uh, the families we serve, the clients we serve, the quality, uh, helping them understand on the back end with a big picture of what they're doing. I think uh, in any call center environment, you are disconnected from the person you're serving. It's very different when you're on a, the phone call with someone versus a face-to-face -face interaction. So we try to uh, motivate in, in different ways, and a lot of that is uh, 
by providing them with the big picture, allowing shadowing opportunities out in the communities which we serve, because I think it just helps to connect the um, the big picture. And we, you, generally, people aren't in a call center environment because it provides the the best pay in the world, and especially in a, in a social service center environment, we try to make it about um, the mission, not necessarily the pay. Mm, no, very interesting. Let me just ask you for a second about the uh, shadowing program, uh, because I've also seen that in the, the private sector where uh, people from the call center have been invited to join uh, sales team members or uh, service team members who have been uh, going out to the, the market, out to the customer, actually. So what happens in that uh, type of a shadow experience? So for the Florida Views Hotline, we're the the what we call the gatekeepers of any of the families uh, that come into the system, the Department of Children and Families for the system in Florida. So what happens after intake, the, depending on what we hear on the phone, we have to do a level of assessment to either accept an abuse case or not. Um, if we do accept it, then it gets uh, transmitted to the local office, which we uh, send off to the protective investigators. So the shadowing opportunity is actually with the protective investigators in the local area. So they're able to do a ride-along where they'll um, actually, starting from the moment that they receive an intake out in the field, they'll go um, with that protective investigator to the family's home to actually sit down uh, with the investigator as they speak with the family about the allegation in which we received. So it's really important to understand of the work product, the information you're gathering on the phone, what it is that you're then passing off to this other person who has to then, um, you know, take charge of it and handle the situation. Okay, so then by actually being out in the field and understanding what the field people have to go through, it will make them better uh, agents because when they come back, they'll be able to deal with the information they're given better, and they're able to also... Uh, you know, uh, document the information they're given better. So they're part of the team. Okay. No, that, that sounds very interesting. I've seen that sort of thing in the private sector, and it's very interesting that it also translates over into what you do, but it makes a lot of sense, a lot of sense. And are there other ways that you can motivate your uh, your call center agents? Uh, I think some of the best ways that we've found just internally on a personal level you know, to make it very personal for our call agents that uh, we try to do the scheduling based on performance and the most appropriate way that we can uh, determine that performance management piece of it. Uh, we look at holiday shifts. Uh, obviously, we can't necessarily adjust pay, but um, generally when it comes to the employee's time and any, I think all of us would agree that time is the probably the currency of the day, since money cannot be, um, giving people the, the time uh, when it comes to uh, choosing their shift, the days of the week, the um, the time they have off and all the holidays. It's, it's one of the most effective ways. Right. Okay. And let me ask you this, too. Uh, what's the impact of proper call center technology on performance? We've been hearing some things about technology here at the conference, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are in terms of uh, you know, proper call center technology, performance, service level, that sort of thing. Yes, recently here at the hotline we've upgraded our technology. Uh, so we've gone from probably, um, you know, increasing the use of our IVR, trying to uh, look at the most um, best practice, uh, cutting edge 
types of ways that people are uh, helping service their customers. So having that uh, the most up-to-date uh, and knowing how to really use the call center technology can make an impact on your service level. So if there's something that the customers can do in a self-service mode, uh, it's probably best to, to get them there. And once again, with what we do at the hotline, it's very difficult to, to walk that line with using technology but not overusing technology. Um, we've recently instituted a web portal where um, our reporters can go on, our our callers can uh, go on the web and actually submit allegations of abuse and neglect through a web portal. But once again, if you don't have the two-way communication, you may not get all the information that you need to really assess properly the situation or understand what our um, our callers are trying to get across to us. So we have to be very careful not to overuse technology, but still allow them um, other means to communicate with us. Because the last thing we want to do is discourage people by reporting abuse and neglect because the wait times are too long. So you also right. want to utilize the cutting edge technology to help. Right, right, absolutely. It can be if you leverage it the right way, it can just be a great, uh, great help. Well, with that, I'm getting the high sign, so I'm going to have to join Professor Feinberg now, and I'd like to hand things over to uh, Dee Buell, and uh, thank you again, Kim, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Bruce. Enjoy the rest of your conference. Kim, I want to go back to that last question about the technology. I think that's so important, especially the types of calls and the service that you're providing to the community. And I was thinking about the web portal and how, you know, someone could actually go in there. Oftentimes when you're talking about abuse, other people may see it, but they're hesitant to report it because they don't really want to get involved and they don't want to be accused of doing something inappropriate. Do you find that when they use the web portal that they want to be um, anonymous or do they just speak up and say who they are? Uh, I think it's a mixed bag. No matter what, uh, luckily for the state of Florida, uh, you can remain anonymous if you want to uh, call and report allegations of abuse and neglect. Um, it's a, Like I said, it's a mixed bag. We get callers all the time who I think people are very scared, like you said, to report abuse because they think that because they're reporting it, it has to be um, true and factual and almost verified. But, that you know, it's not the case. If you have um, in any inclination that something's going on, you just have to have suspicion, then we want you to call the hotline. And many times you find that um, people want to have the dialogue going back and forth, and they still will remain anonymous um, even over the phone. So I think when it comes to web versus the phone, it's probably a, about the same percentage for anonymous reporting. Okay. And do you do a lot of, like, um data analysis as to, you know, the types of things that you get on those lines? Oh, goodness, yes. Probably like every other call center, uh, data-rich, information-poor, you know, trying to use uh, the data um, in the most appropriate way and really understanding uh, what you're looking at. But we try to slice and dice things every which way, especially by time frame, by season, by reporter, uh, by the length of time. Um, also looking at all those things by our acceptance rate when it comes to uh, the allegations that we're accepting for investigations. We find that obviously in the overnight hours, because we are a 24-7 environment, that in the overnight hours, more more so law enforcement um, is our main consumer of that time frame. So of course, if they're calling us, generally they've gone out to the home, they've 
um, they've verified them as the findings, so we would take a higher percentage of investigations off that stuff. So we're looking at all kinds of things to really um, uh, not only help our uh, what we call our external customers, our reporters of abuse and neglect, but even our internal customers because we pass on a product to the investigators. Oh, wow, that's so interesting. Well, you know, I want to change this a little bit here, but, you know, we've all gone through a lot of economic changes over the last five, six, seven years, whatever. And in the government sector, there's always so much of a spotlight there. How are you managing and shifting priorities in this economic environment right now? Um, probably like most other call centers, right? you know, it's very difficult using those metrics appropriately, but we are looking at ways to drive down our average handling time where we can actually service more um, calls and, and contacts. And once again, trying to do that in the most appropriate way. So we've been uh, utilizing technology to uh, you know, drive down the average handling time without compromising quality. So if you can look at ways to do um, direct entry where you're not duplicating work processes, so you're not taking notes on a piece of paper and then having to go back and scribe them into your system, um, we finally over the last two years have you know, gone to this paperless environment. But then again, you're creating another um, duplicate work process if you're typing in some type of note-taking and then having to transcribe that somewhere else because we're not, um, probably unlike other call centers, we're not just uh, making a call record and noting what we did in the account. We're actually having to put together a product that goes to the investigator that's also a legal document in the eyes of the court if it does get to some type of... Um, uh, further situation down the line. So we've got a, uh, a average handling time, unlike most, where one-third of our average handling time is talk and two-thirds is after-call work. So it's a very okay. interesting um, line we walk. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, with that being said, I would imagine your hiring process must be very focused on writing skills and so forth. So how do you go about hiring the right call center person for the job that can listen, can write, can translate, and prepare something like that in a social service environment? Oh, that is a wonderful question. Uh, so the first thing we, we have to do is that you have to have a college degree, a bachelor's degree, to work at the Florida Youth Hotline. It's very important that you um, – can multitask and, uh, like you said, not only listen but then take notes at the same time. So we do a very um, uh, thorough job on the application and skills assessment process before we ever even conduct interviews. Uh, that in and of itself usually takes a month just to hire. We also have to do a whole uh, series of background screenings and everything so you can work at the hotline. And then beyond that, we have a nine-week pre-service training that uh, we do six uh, six weeks worth of classroom and then a three work three weeks worth of on the job practicum training. So we really do this extensive hiring process and pre service training just to get out onto the call floor to um, make sure that you're actually going to be successful in the job. And I would imagine because of um, the type of calls and so forth that you're taking, is bilingual one of the skills that you look for? Uh, we do. It's not mandatory. We have a translator service that we use. Uh, you would think living in the state of Florida that we would have a higher uh, population of Spanish calls coming into the hotline, but it's really relatively low. Uh, it has to do with the fact that uh, I think over probably about 55% of our callers 
uh, from the professional environment here in Florida where um, they, they're professionally mandated reporters of child abuse and neglect. So those teachers, the law enforcement, court personnel, uh, medical personnel, they are required to call the hotline with any suspicion. So I think that's probably generally why um, uh, we have a very low need for uh, the translator service, relatively okay. speaking. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Well, these are some great insights, and, and thank you so much for sharing a lot of that. But I think Brian has some questions coming in now from our listeners. Brian? I sure do. I've got uh, a couple emails that just came in, so I'll get right to the first one. And uh, this is kind of a big challenge and a good question. So it goes to you. How do you staff in a 24-7, 365-day environment and adjust schedules to fit your changing business model without affecting agent morale? Oh, that's a great question, and that is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, you know, any workforce scheduling software, if you've ever used it, you know there are parameters and limitations that you put in place to um, to fit your business model. And because of the professionalized staff that we have, they expect, um, you know, a five-day work week uh, with consecutive days off, with uh, n- not having too much time lapse between what you're doing. They're, we're also salaried, so you have to guarantee them a certain shift. So you may have peaks and valleys where you're wasteful or don't have enough. So we're constantly trying to figure out um, in this 24-7 environment how we're staffing and adjusting schedules. But as soon as you go to shift someone back um, to a different uh, schedule, it's very difficult to try to keep the morale up if they were once on days and now they're going to evenings. So we try to do the, the best we can with um, with shift bidding, using the software in the most appropriate um, appropriate way that we can while keeping morale up and also while incentivizing uh, great performance uh, with with the morale and, and the choosing of schedules. So we're constantly trying to uh, mitigate and adjust for that. Okay. Dee, did you have any comments on that? Um, no, I was just actually thinking about, you know, when you're talking about a 24 by 7 shop, you know, that really is a challenge no matter whether it be in the government sector or the private sector. It's, it's a very difficult thing because, as you just stated, people expect to have days off and they expect to have a little control over their time. So I think it's very similar. Mm-hmm. Well, we find when you run the forecasting and scheduling, it's that, you know, given the number of people you have and the number of hours you can staff, the the software will show that, yes, you have enough. However, when you start putting all those parameters on it, especially in the 24-7 environment, all of a sudden your availability of resources is drastically uh, reduced. So it's very interesting that you've got to almost overstaff to meet those needs. Yes. And Kim, are there folks out there, or maybe on a percentage as a rough guess, how many of those agents actually prefer to work evenings or kind of the, the odd shifts? It's all relative to the individual. Uh, we find that it comes in waves that we have because uh, about 30% of our workforce actually has a master's and the other 30% are back in school getting them. So they actually are more conducive to the, the weekend work, the evening work, because it will fit their need to go to school. So if you can get the, the right type of worker and advertise for that type of shift that comes back to when you go to hire, actually put up there what you need, they know that – uh, we don't get holidays here, so even though Thanksgiving is coming up and most of the world has the Thursday and Friday off, our nation, it doesn't mean that we do. So you've got to make it clear from day one exactly what you're walking into. And once again, they're here for the mission, not the pay. Oh, okay. Yeah, 
Very interesting. Well, uh, thank you, Mark, for that question. And uh, this next question comes from Carrie. You kind of almost answered it, but I just want to make sure that she gets her, uh, her question out there. And it is, how do you incentivize agents non-monetarily? Once again, yes, just really looking at what we can do to when it comes to what's important to them. Yeah, another thing uh, we can kind of talk about is that not every not every employee is motivated motivated by the same thing. So, getting our supervisors adequately trained on understanding what it means to supervise, because part of that is also spotting morale issues and what motivates certain employees. So some employees are motivated motivated by the idea of their shift and time and getting home to their family. Others are motivated by the idea of uh, increasing uh, their standing here at the hotline and wanting to go to supervisor, to manager ultimately. So I think that's another important thing. It's really understanding what motivates an employee as an individual and focusing on that at the supervisor level. Kim, I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Um, as you were talking with Bruce earlier about um, the job shadowing and that sort of thing or and going out, is that ever received by the agents as a motivator? Uh, absolutely. Some love it. Again, some want to just come in and do their job so, and, and focus on them and, and not um, – uh, want to go shadow. So it's very uh, interesting. You have to be very careful on what you think may motivate someone may actually be an um, unmo- unmotivating factor. So uh, once again, it's very important for the supervisor to understand their employees and what um, actually motivates them. Great. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you. And then another question, this one coming from Greg, asking, how do you conduct pre-service training? How long is it? And how do you have in-service while not affecting your business needs. Okay, so once again, our pre-service training, we do have the nine weeks, and six of it is classroom, and the other three weeks is on the job, or what we call practicum training here. Uh, We keep them in uh, once we have actually released them from the pre-service training. When they graduate, then they go out onto the floor with their direct supervisor, and their direct supervisor is actually uh, the, the sole person responsible for making sure that they are um, pushing forward and, and gaining on-the-job knowledge, and they are in 100% review until the supervisor releases them. And then in-service training, we use our staffing software to help um, minimize the impact to our call volume and our customers. But again, in a 24-7 environment, it's very difficult to try to find the time. You know, everyone always talks about the time to, to do adequate in-service training, but if you don't, then it's just ultimately affecting um, your workforce and your customers, but our in-service training, um, generally if we can keep it within the hours that they work, we try to do that, try to do it in our off-season peak hours, uh, but also looking at overtime to fill in the gap, but not um, letting the in-service training fall by the wayside because that is always a secondary priority. You know, it needs to be one of the first or top priorities when you're looking at your staff and ultimately serving your customers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, I have one last question. It looks like we have some time for it. So uh, this one is coming from Pat, and uh, uh, Pat must have been listening in and know that you're in Florida because I understand you guys have a a hurricane issue down there every season. So what is your disaster recovery plan, and uh, how are are you, the, the new technology, and what's available to support that plan? 
Um, for our disaster recovery, once again, because we're 24-7, we are constantly trying to keep the plane flying while changing the engine. It's the, the analogy we like to use around here. So um, we have a very robust disaster recovery plan uh, trying to use our uh, not only keeping our systems up and going, but our staff constantly staffed at the same time. Uh, telecommuting is one of the main things that we found is really uh, helpful with our disaster recovery. I think uh, anyone who has to uh, keep an operation going that is so critical, um, because the state of Florida, the way in which we're shaped, it doesn't mean that if Miami's getting a hurricane that Tallahassee um, is actually getting one or affected by it. So if uh, where we're located in the capital in Tallahassee, if there's a direct impact for a hurricane here in Tallahassee, we still have to service because we're centralized, the hotline, the entire state. So we've got to make sure that we're still operational while taking phone calls for Miami. So we use telecommuting to, um, uh, as a level one kind of disaster recovery to keep ourselves operational while we can get other people uh, relocated around the state to um, to um, take those phone calls and having a fault-tolerant system using um, our call center technology to keep us um, basically in um, in dual mode while we're uh, doing the main operation while setting up our disaster recovery plan. Well, thank you, Kim, for sharing all this great information. You know, as I've sit and, and we've talked through these things, it just goes to show that no matter what part of Call, caller um, business you're in, whether it is an industry that is supporting the community, whether it is a private sector, you know, whether it's government, whatever it is, there's always those unique things that differentiate differentiate your operation from somebody else. And it, Kim, it sounds like you guys have done a great job to. I think you said it even earlier. You know, what is your mission? I think it's very important that every company realize what is their mission, who is their customer, and what do you need to do to take care of that mission and that customer. And you have explained very well how your team takes it to heart, and uh, I appreciate all that. And, Kim, I know the listeners do too. Brian, at this point, I'm going to give it back to you to wrap things up. Okay, sounds good, Dee. Uh, and, and, Kim, really, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. Also, would like to thank uh, our hosts of the show today, Bruce Belfiore and Dee Buell, for their insightful discussion. And I uh, want to also invite you to join us next time. Uh, it's June 12, 2013, for our next Call Talk episode, where we'll talk about adding sales to your customer service culture and how you can start paying for your center in three months. Don't forget to also sign up for free Reality Check Benchmark Report and see how your contact center compares to others in the industry. And from all of us here at Benchmark Portal, keep those headsets steady and your fingers ready. This is Brian Carrington signing out. Have a great day. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know 
all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.